Welcome to the PaxX Podcast, available on iTunes. This is episode 29 of the show where we talk about everything to do with the passenger experience. I'm Mary Kirby, and I'm joined by my co-host, Max Flight. Max, how are you doing? Well, Mary, I have to say I'm still a little bit giddy because last night we recorded Airplane Geeks episode 375, and our guest was Brian Schola. He's an Air Force fighter pilot who was shot down in Vietnam, horribly burned in the crash, rescued with little chance of surviving. He spent a year in the hospital, returned to active flight duty. He went on to teach at the Top Gun School, and then he topped it all off by flying the SR-71 spy plane. So just an amazing and fascinating story. Very exciting. Oh, sounds like a must listen, Max. I'm going to look forward to that. Um, Well, before we get started today, we'd like to thank eGate Solutions for sponsoring this week's podcast. We all want happy passengers. They buy more and they're likely to be more loyal to your airline. But delivering a positive passenger experience is hard when you're relying on legacy systems and manual processes. eGate Solutions provides the technology behind onboard services, connecting and automating every step of an airline's operations from the warehouse to the passenger. With eGate, you can spend less time and money on the process and more on optimizing the passenger experience, which really is what we're all in the business of delivering. Visit eGate Solutions online at www.egate-solutions.com or email them at info at egate-solutions to learn more. Now, it is my great pleasure to introduce our guest today, who has, I have to say, quite a resume, (laughs) amazing resume. Anthony Davis is a British broadcaster, aviation journalist, and private pilot who provides airline industry analysis for TV, radio, and print. He regularly appears on Sky News, Al Jazeera, Channel 5 News, Good Morning Britain, ITV News, and MSNBC, and is the resident aviation analyst for the Daily Mirror newspaper. Across London, his late-night LBC radio news talk show earned him a reputation on the airwaves for almost a decade. He currently presents the Drive Time Show on Smooth Radio. Thanks so much for joining us, Anthony. Wow, you've got quite a history there. Even I'm impressed listening to you. (laughs) It went by in a flash. (laughs) Anthony's a man of many talents. But uh, let's move uh, right on to some of the top PaxX news stories making headlines. First, we have another aviation tragedy with the Metrojet Airbus 321 crash in northern Sinai, killing all 224 on board. Anthony, you've been doing media interviews since the crash. What's the latest on the investigation? Well, the latest, Max, is that the mystery continues, and uh, we're now several days after the crash, which happened on the 31st of October. And uh, because it, it went down in Egypt, because it was a Russian plane registered in Ireland uh, with, I think, a Turkish owner, I mean, there, there's a lot of uh, distance between this uh, tragedy and the facts at the moment. And it's obviously a quite a a political race here as to who wants to be first to the information. So Metrojet, the airline themselves, gave a press conference. That's really the only official conference we've had. And they wanted to distance themselves from any kind of mechanical malfunction or pilot error without even doing an investigation. Now, then again, they didn't even put it on a shirt and tie and jacket for the conference. You know, one of the main guys was sitting there in a stripy T-shirt. So that kind of tells you quite a lot about the organization. And what concerns me is that there are quite a few of these 
smaller charter airlines because this this airline flew charters for TUI. So, you know, they're involved in much larger organizations, but you know, what what's their maintenance like? How how efficient are they running? And I have no problem with the Airbus, I have no problem with the story about the tail strike in 2001. Things like that don't bother me. But I have a greater concern about how soon it's going to take to get to the truth and are we going to get a proper investigation? Anthony, when I first uh, became an aviation journalist many, many, many years ago now, um, I remember it, it being a rather commonplace occurrence for Russian Tupolev and Aleutian aircraft to crash. I mean, it, sadly, it got to the point where, it, it, you know, at one juncture, it felt like it was happening, you know, every number of months. Um, the fact that this is an Airbus aircraft, obviously, uh, you know, which has a great record, a great safety record, um, you know, is interesting. But um, in various different exchanges that I've had over the last few days uh, with individuals with respect to this crash, time and again, they keep saying that Russian MRO still isn't where it should be. Do you think that that's a fair assessment that even though Russian operators are now flying much more updated aircraft, newer aircraft, um, more reliable aircraft, that the MRO is still a problem in Russia overall? I think you're right to make the point. I mean, Aeroflot flies some beautiful A330s now, which I enjoy seeing flying into London Heathrow. But there is um, serious questions over the operations uh, of these. You know, it's all very well having nice-looking aircraft on the outside, but that's the last piece in the puzzle, isn't it? And as we all know, the um, I wouldn't even say pilot training is an issue because, you know, a lot of them are ex-military. And, in fact, the Russians are rather brilliant when it comes to technology and when it comes mm. to the space race. And, you know, the, the, the Russians know their stuff. But whether they dot their I's and cross their T's is something else. So I don't really know. Look, people are saying now, the, the latest they're saying is this is an internal explosion on the airplane. You know, they've been looking at some of the uh, imagery that's come from the crash sites, which was very badly handled in the media. You know, we saw uh, a representative from uh, the Kremlin, I think, holding a piece or he was actually holding the, the, the flight data recorder in his hands and passing it around. It was shocking, those pictures. Really shocking. Mm. That's not how you conduct uh, an investigation after a plane crash where this number of souls have, have died. So I think we need to wait for Airbus to get in there. They're obviously sending representatives from France and from Germany. Uh, Airbus have a Russian outpost anyway. So I, I would very much like to see Airbus step up here and push this investigation forward along with the Civil Aviation Authority and, and, and uh, really the entire aviation community pushing for specific answers sooner rather than later. Yeah, I think, Anthony, that what we need here is almost some credible leadership uh, for the investigation because uh, we've seen just some comments from various governments and agencies that I think have been quite irresponsible. Usually we're talking about, after an accident, uh, what's going on in the press and the kinds of reporting the press is doing and how that's sometimes not uh, very proper. But this time, I mean, we're seeing these agencies uh, make these statements that are just unfounded or uh, can't possibly be known. It's kind of shocking. Well, the press response has been really unacceptable, I would say. And part of the problem is social media and the speed in which information uh, carries these days. Now, 
obviously decades ago, before people had smartphones and, and even live flight tracking. I mean, you know, Flight Radar 24 and Flight Map and all these organizations have done rather well out of this. In fact, I think if you look on the App Store, currently, I think uh, Flight Radar is what in the top five of the most popular apps. Well, who thought that was just for av geeks? It turns out everybody wants to know where the planes are. Everybody wants to know when one squawks 7700. And that's the other thing, that the media are jumping on these squawks every time something happens, thinking that an emergency is going to be fatal. And I worry that they're disappointed when it turns out just to be a medical emergency. Hmm. Oh, interesting. I mean, with specific regard to the Metrojet crash, wouldn't you say, however, that these contradicting statements that are coming out from Russian officials, Egyptian officials, Metrojet itself, that has fueled a lot of the speculation on social media and, and of course, by the media, and then people kind of run wild with it? Don't you think that – I just wonder what's the chicken and egg here just in this specific regard because it just – isn't being handled in what seems, at least from this vantage point and, and that of many others, in a very professional manner. Well, the word is propaganda, Mary. This right. is what it is. It's a, it's a political game. And the Russians obviously have there's this issue still surrounding MH17 and uh, the, the, the shooting down of the Malaysia aircraft. Now, that is hanging in the, in the background here, and the Russians want to distance themselves from anything like this. I mean, I've heard some conspiracy theorists coming up with all sorts of things and that gets thrown into the mix and the newspapers don't really care whether they have an accurate story or not they just want to sell newspapers but you're right to say that official organizations certainly need to lead in a professional manner and you know i know i mentioned the t-shirt of the metrojet official but you know that's important he should have been dressed properly because then the rest of the world would have taken them more seriously it's as simple as that and that's why I would like Airbus really to step in here because they need to sell planes. They don't want people to think that the A321, which is very much a current aircraft and is very much the 757 of the future, they want people to uh, maintain trust in their business and their mm-hmm. product. I don't think John Leahy would like it very much <laughs> to know that uh, you know, Airbus were implicated in any way in this disaster. Right. But all this, I think, has an effect on the perception in the general population of what air travel is like. I mean, if they see a circus, and I'm not sure this has risen to that level yet, but, you know, this lack of professionalism, I think that affects people's perception of what air travel is like these days. And it doesn't really help to instill confidence in the flying public. Well, There is a very interesting story. One of the most interesting things that has come out of this is there is an eyewitness report or certainly a a direct interview with a woman in the Daily Mirror, which is the newspaper that I I contribute aviation stories to. And she said that security at Sharm el-Sheikh is terrible. She said if anybody wanted to get a bomb on board an aeroplane, Sharm el-Sheikh is the place to do it. Uh, she said you could go in a, in a very bad, fancy dress version of a military uniform or security outfit and you could walk through any barrier at any point there. She said that, you know, it, it looks like the staff are disinterested, they're completely underpaid and, and the concern is that, you know, terrorists, if indeed this is a terrorist situation, the terrorists are very clever, you know. Let's, let's uh, credit them with that. They 
will scour the airports that have the least security. They will take routes to get onto aircraft with hand luggage that is questionable. They'll go out of their way to know the um, airport security better than even the security services. And my greatest fear is that there are holes across the a lot of the tourist uh, destinations, and I would suggest that Sharm el-Sheikh is one of them, probably less so St. Petersburg as the, as the destination, but Sharm el-Sheikh, where they boarded, from what I've read today, is not the most secure airport. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, well, this has been a rough, a rough, a rough few years in aviation, really, hasn't it? Um, unfortunately, with very high-profile uh, crashes, and um, and of course now, uh, you know, because again, I, I circle back to my early days. Um, you know, the Tupolevs uh, that crashed, they really didn't get kind of the international exposure. But we're in a social media-driven world, and so now every crash is reported in a big way, um, deservedly so. Um, but then does that now spur a fear of flying amongst passengers? Uh, you know, do, do you think this is something we need to be kind of on alert about with respect to uh, flying fears going forward in light of this kind of spate of very unfortunate uh, crashes? Yeah, I do. Yes. I think it depends where in the world you live. And people yeah. are very prejudiced about different parts of the world. Yeah. So the people who are looking at this will see a kind of budget Russian airline. And mm-hmm. they'll think, oh, it's never going to happen to us because that's a budget Russian airline. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Malaysia Airlines is a big airline. German Wings is uh, a subsidiary of Lufthansa. I know that was a different, slightly different situation, but in terms of putting passengers off, sure. yes, the, the, it does seem, just from a media perspective, that there are more plane crashes than ever. The fact that there are more safe flights than ever is kind of irrelevant. Right. All right. Well, let's move on to our next topic and talk about the ultra low cost carriers and how they're giving legacy airlines a run for their money. We even see American announcing recently that it plans to offer more fare options to compete with Spirit Airlines pricing. Well, people are booking with carriers that offer a less than ideal passenger experience. Anthony, in your view, what's the passenger perception of economy travel? Do they care about the experience or is it just all about the cheap ride? Well, Max, it's interesting. You know, I think a lot of it depends on the duration of the flight. That's the first thing that passengers would think about. They'll say, you know, if I'm stuck on this thing for 10 hours, I I probably want to be more comfortable than if I'm on it for an hour and a half to two hours. Now, I don't know much about um, domestic American uh, travel because I've never flown domestically in the United States. Surprise, surprise. I like a road trip. But uh, I know an awful lot about European short-haul carry. And from that perspective, we have two airlines that very much dominate uh, the UK and Europe. That is EasyJet and Ryanair. And their fares are so cheap that all of the decisions made by passengers who fly those airlines are based on price. And you know that you're going to get a, you know, a small seat with not much leg room, with no in-flight entertainment. But you know, they advertise seats from one pound to go to, to, go to Rome or to go to, go to, to Madrid. And you know, who could turn down that? So I think if people have paid a rock-bottom price then they will be very happy to put up with very little. And famously, Michael O'Leary, the boss of Ryanair, once peddled a PR uh, story saying that uh, he would be having people standing up 
uh, they'd be paying the cheapest fare ever, which is not a bad idea. And I did see some patents for standing up, but I think it might have been an April. <laughs> uh, let, let me just interject there and say that uh, thankfully, thus far, uh, the stand-up seating uh, configs have not uh, you know, been deemed airworthy uh, or passed any level of certification, 16G testing being, uh, of course, among the main ones. And, um, and of course, there's all sorts of other questions uh, that, that go along with the stand-up seats. But it's interesting that you bring that up because this is something myself and Max we talked about recently. This kind of this influx of of uh, patents uh, and and some really kind of uh, interesting ideas that the likes of Michael O'Leary, if uh, if given the chance, would in fact <laughs> have no uh, compunction to to not do it. Um, so it, it is interesting. But don't don't you think? And I don't. Know, I see it here in the United States where you know I have some friends that fly, for example, Spirit Airlines regularly, and they will complain, you know, and about the airline and yet they will still continue to book it do you see the same in 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 europe as well easyjet is the airline that which is we call it the orange army in the industry i don't know if you've heard that term before but uh, and i have a friend who recently got a job as a senior captain on board and you know he he says i'm now flying for the orange army which <laughs> traditional but you know i used to never recommend easyjet or ryanair i would just say do yourself a favor take a british airways flight you know or a monarch airlines flight it, it's going to be better and now the advice i give people is completely the opposite easyjet recently passed the 250 mark with their fleet they have 250 airbus 319s and 320s um, in fact they have more i think they have nearly 270 or 280 now that is more aircraft than british airways they're about to take over the entire North Terminal at Gatwick Airport, which is, you know, London's second largest airport. They're going to use technology at Gatwick that is far beyond any other check-in and security technology whereby passengers are tracked via their own mobile phones, their GPS, um, as they enter the airport and all the way through till they get on the plane. They are going to be able to move through the turnstiles, uh, 10 times more people than they've ever done before. It is, uh, my friend who's the pilot says that if they push back five minutes late, then that is on the head of the, of the pilot. He's going to have to explain to head office why. So actually, these cheap airlines, the only way they make money if they're advertising fares at, at under £50 return, let's say, is to push back on time and to get there on time, and to be brilliant. And actually, I've traveled with EasyJet a couple of times recently, and it's been incredible. I've traveled with Monarch and British Airways short haul, and it's been terrible. Mm. Late, and the, the aircraft is, is old and dirty. And, you know, so my advice to my friends and family has changed completely. You know? <laughs> Isn't that the great irony, though, getting on some of these legacy carriers in, uh, in Europe and, and discovering that you, you don't have any more legroom, for example, because they've tightened up a lot. I've, I've been on, you know, Aer Lingus and uh, Air Berlin and uh, Iberia and, and these airlines and, and been somewhat surprised at how tight it, some of them have gone. Um, where, where's the differentiation then for a legacy versus these LCCs? Well, like I say, it's all about, you know, the duration of the flight. So if, mm-hmm. if we're talking about, I mean, I, I specialize in, in transatlantic and I, I, I know a lot about, you know, how to get to America because <laughs> I come to the States a lot and I want to get there as cheaply as possible. So I know every trick in the book to, to get there. But, 
even my brother who came over to the UK yesterday from Los Angeles where he lives, um, he knows nothing about aeroplanes. He, he kind of asks me, you know, or he doesn't even ask me. He has a travel agent. He books the cheapest fare he can. And he sent me his uh, itinerary, and I was very excited to see that the American Airlines flight that he'd booked was actually operated by British Airways. And, of course, (laughs) the only way you can get to L.A. or to London from L.A. on British Airways is on the the A380. And so I was so excited and extremely jealous that he was, you know, taking this trip. And so I was sending him pictures. I even sent him a link to the uh, documentary that I lent my voice to for the Discovery Network recently about the, the, the story, the history of the A380, which he refused to watch because my voice was on it. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. But he texted me when he was on board before pushback, before they closed the doors. And he said, what's so special about this plane anyway? And that really upset me because, you know, I think that there are some airlines and there are some uh, aircraft type like the 380 that really do offer, even in economy, a much, much better product than you get on some of those uh, older aircraft. And my brother said when he landed and we debriefed on it, he said, it's all very well saying I had an 18-inch wide seat versus a 17.5-inch wide seat on another plane. He said, but the guy next to me was coughing throughout the entire flight. The person in front of me reclined their seat so far back I had no room. He said, so it doesn't matter what type of uh, aircraft it is. You just want a plane that has got people who have manners sitting either side of you. And that's the difference between a good flight and a bad flight. Oh, fascinating. Well, you know, here in the United States, we're dealing with a little bit of a uh, battle of the bulge, one might say, uh, where we're definitely getting wider and taller, something that myself and Max talk about on a regular basis. Um, And would you say that kind of Western nations now where this has become an issue, uh, the actual seat width uh, is more acute? And one would observe that that extra inch makes a difference, you think, versus, say, Asia? I don't think uh, the half inch makes a huge difference. I think it's great for Airbus to announce it as they did at, uh, at the air show a, a year or two ago and be really excited about the whole 18-inch story. But, you know, Airbus also submitted plans for 10 across on an A380 on the lower deck recently, which I think I read on your website. Oh, that's 11 across, yes, mm. which, which would put it on par very much so with... Uh, kind of contradicts everything that they've been talking <laughs> about with, with an <laughs> seat. Yeah, they, they talk a little bit out of both sides of their mouth there at Airbus sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> So I don't know necessarily that seat size is really the issue. Um, We know the whole red herring or the smoke and mirrors with the Dreamliner. I heard you talk about it on last Mm. time's podcast. You know, this is a a big issue. And in fact, let me tell you a very quick story. I have a lovely friend called Jill. She came around my house. She was so excited to tell me she'd booked a flight to New York. I was like, great. Who did you book the flight with? She was like, oh, um, we're going on the Dreamliner. I was like, right. So you're flying with who? She goes, Norwegian. And I said, well, firstly, it's not kind of Norwegian. You know, it's registered in Ireland, but fine, okay, it's a Dreamliner. And I said, you, you, you might get an American crew or you might get an Asian crew, um, but uh, how much did you pay? And she said, oh, we paid, um, and she, I think she, she told me she paid something like uh, £900 each, right, for two of them, £900 hmm. each. And I said, really? 
And she said, yeah, is that not good? You know, it's Christmas. It's very hard to get a flight to New York for less than a thousand pounds. I said, well, I said, hang on a second. And I, I logged on to lacompany.com. And I don't know if you're aware of this airline. I flew them recently. It's the all business class 757. Yes. Paris yes. from London Luton to New York. And I, they do a web duo price. Two people, almost flatbeds, French business class experience, private jet feel, mm-hmm. and came in at £1,697 for both of them return. Oh, it was wow. less than the, than the nine across dream <laughs> that does not allow you to dream. You can't even close the window blind <laughs> when you're trying to sleep. And really upset because they couldn't get a refund on their Norwegian flight. And I really rubbed it into them because, you know, La Company, they've only got two airplanes, but I've flown them to New York and I, I just thought that was the most magnificent product. You know, I know it doesn't go flat, but hey, you know, what's, what's three degrees between friends? <laughs> <laughs> Especially at that price. Right, right. Well, Anthony, we wanted to talk to you about the red carpet route. Can you tell us what that means? What are the seven airlines working that track? Sure. The red carpet route is, I mean, I love the name for a start. It's really exciting. Uh, it's not, the, the, the definition is not quite as exciting as the title. It's the route between London and Los Angeles for all the media types, the stars, the celebrities, so that they can do the premieres in London, do the premieres in LA and and all the crew and the directors and the actors. Um, but actually, it's also for people like you and I who might like to visit London or visit Los Angeles. And I've flown on all seven of the carriers that do this route in many parts of the uh, bus, uh, the back of the bus, as Mary likes to call it, on most of the carriers. Um, I've actually, this might surprise you, but I've only ever flown business class twice in my life. Once was on the inaugural A380 press flight uh, out of London, BA269, uh, to, to LA. And uh, I think I bought a premium economy ticket, and they always upgrade you one level only. So you'd never get first class, and you'd never get uh, Club World if you were in World Traveler, let's say. But they move you up one run. So I, I managed to get Club World on that uh, outbound. And it was great. It was the most amazing experience. And, but, you know, I probably wouldn't pay for it. And I, I think that, you know, if we could give great advice, we should be teaching economy passengers how to do long haul in a really comfortable way without overpaying for it. I think it's really yes. good. Yeah, because, this, you know, uh, it's a metal tube at the end of the day. Everyone's heading in the same direction. It is. So I, I do think that that is you know, an instance where the A380, uh, you know, as you say, I, I, I think that that's kind of the, the prime aircraft to ensure just a, a certain level of comfort uh, for the economy class passenger. But of course, it also, come, also comes down to what the airline decides is going to be the, the seat pitch, um, you know, the configuration of the aircraft and of course, service. I mean, you know, at the end of the day, service is, is a big, big deal and can make or break your passenger experience. Um, it, this uh, this, this uh, is kind of interesting to me, this red carpet route. You know, I have never flown uh, the red carpet route. I've never flown it. But when you say that you've only ever done business uh, twice, you know, that to me means that you're a real journalist, Anthony, you know. <laughs> <laughs> that means that you're in the back of the bus with the rest of us. 
Yeah, the only other time I flew business class, I paid for it as well, and it was Air Mauritius going oh. to Mauritius. And Air Mauritius business class <laughs> is like economy for most other <laughs> airlines. So, so it's very hard to kind of call that a comparison. But, but what I've done, actually, I did a little bit of research before we, we uh, started talking, and I've priced up all seven of those airlines for the red carpet route. Just, and I'll tell you a little bit about each one. And it does seem crazy that there are seven airlines flying out of London uh, to, to LA. It's amazing that there, is a, there are enough passengers to, to, to load these aircraft. Um, so we've mentioned British Airways. Now, I would say that the, the, the price that you should pay as an economy passenger should be topped out at around £500, which is, in today's money, 770 bucks. Um, and in fact, anything sub 700 bucks is a really good price to get from one side of the pond to the other. So, so British Airways for February uh, next year, and I've been looking February 7th out, 28th back, um, from London to LAX, the BA flight on the A380 is £498, which is a kind of perfect price. I always say to people, sit upstairs because... Do you know, the guy who was the chief engineer on the, on the A380 project showed me around their, their first plane one time, and he, uh, he said to me, it's a 747 downstairs, and we stuck an A330 on top. <laughs> That's great. That's what they wanted to create, two planes in one. So I've walked the length of the upper deck, um, and row 74 at the back of the, or kind of halfway down the economy section upstairs on the a380 is the quietest row. Now, talk about crazy. I walked the whole length of the plane to find the quietest row in a car. And I can always remember row 74 because it's the year of my birth. So if you can get a window seat on the upper deck, you, of course, you get the extra ledge with the hatch where you could put your hand luggage down the side. It's a nice place to lean. You also get the silence up there because you're so far from the engine, which is under the wing. So, you know, you're so far from it. I don't like to be too far down the back because of the APU and the noise of the galley, and it's a huge galley up the back there. So that's my advice if you're flying on the A380 is get upstairs and get, get on row 74. Wow. And it's already a quiet aircraft. I always say, consider the A380 like a, like a flying couch. But all, all of this, of course, uh, it, happening while um, Heathrow expansion is uh, – there's a big question mark as to how that, all of that's going. Do you track the Heathrow expansion story, Anthony? Yeah, I'm very much across Heathrow. I mean, I really feel that, uh, you know, we're, we're so behind. I don't know how you feel in the United States, but when I read about new air, airports being built in Dubai and being built in China, uh, and I, I just think to myself, they literally build airports every other week. We have been discussing expanding, yeah. which is our only hub airport. We've been discussing it for nearly 30 years. <laughs> and yeah. And funnily enough, Heathrow used to have five runways on it. You know, it was like a, a five-pointed Star of David if you looked at the layout, the original layout. Now it has two horizontal runways, um, which occasionally they use in mixed mode, but in the main, one takes off, one lands, and uh, they're at 99% capacity. So when things go wrong, like yesterday, we had the worst fog. Visibility was down to 50 meters for arrivals. All the landings were Cat 3 auto land. My brother said on the A380 coming in, the captain made an announcement that the aircraft will be, an auto, will be doing an auto land, which I thought was so exciting that they actually announced that so that passengers 
don't worry when they can't see anything out of the window until the plane touches down. But um, yeah, Heathrow is desperate for expansion. It really is. And there's a struggle going on, a political struggle, because no government wants to sanction it. Gatwick Airport is our second airport, and they only have one runway, which the way that operates is so tragic. You know, when I compare it to some of the great American airports like Atlanta, which I love, which I think has 10 runways uh, and the tallest air traffic controlled tower in the States. You know, we really need to raise our game in the UK and uh, Heathrow is really the only answer. It's a hub. You are being very kind, Anthony, about American airports. <laughs> for for all the uh, the Atlanta Hartsfields, there's Philadelphia International, <laughs> which is an absolute disgrace um, in so many ways. But in any case, I think uh, Max, do you do you think we've talked about this before? I, I think our transportation infrastructure here in the U.S., uh, you know, notwithstanding some of the examples here, uh, is in dire dire straits. Yeah, it is. Uh, although it's sort of easy to uh, to be very critical because we, you know, think back to times when it was maybe different and the yeah. travel experience was different. But you know, as uh, one of our listeners on the other show pointed out, in the 1960s, he said uh, one fifth of the public had traveled by air, and now today, four fifths of the public have traveled by air. So. Uh, despite the uh, the infrastructure condition, despite the decline of the passenger experience, if you will, air travel is just available to uh, to many more people. They're taking advantage of it. They're visiting their friends. They're visiting their families. They're traveling to places they would never have otherwise visited. Uh, so on balance, uh, his point was socially, maybe we're actually in a better place today than we were mm-hmm. back then. Interesting. Mm-hmm. That is interesting. So the air travel should not be available to everybody. I mean, I've started to think that recently. Uh, I started to think it when a woman on a Virgin Atlantic flight in economy started clipping her toenails in the row next. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, myself, you know, this is too cheap, and a a sub five hundred pound or seven hundred buck flight across the pond is not enough money because. And this might sound bad, but, you know, I, this is, I think this is why the Middle Eastern carriers uh, have really taken control of the aviation industry in terms of passenger comfort um, and service. Because the customers, the passengers in the Middle East are so discerning that if it's not perfect on board, then, you know, they're not going to be happy about it. And you don't want to get on the wrong side <laughs> some of those guys so and when you look at etihad and when you look at you know the residents on that on their a380 for goodness sake you know this is so far ahead of anything that any american carriers could have so much so that the americans and please stop me if i'm speaking out of turn here but you know they're undoubtedly pushing to close that open skies agreement because they can't handle the competition Okay, you won't hear any argument from me there. Now, of course, this has all been playing out before us, and uh, and it's ramping up. Uh, you know, with Delta Airlines, of course, um, the rhetoric is, is strong these days. But um, but yes, absolutely, the the Middle Eastern carriers have really set a standard. I will note, however, that some of them 
are actually uh, they have set the standard and of course service is, is hugely important and they and they provide a great service but their hard product is starting to look in economy class much like their US counterparts so uh, the likes of Qatar Airways uh, announcing that it's going to go 10 abreast on its 777s the fact that Emirates in fact was the one who uh, actually was one of the first to go 10 abreast and set that standard so they get a lot of great press but when you do look at the hard product specifically I'm not talking soft product and I'm not talking service, but just hard product. Um, sometimes I think they get a lot of this great press and, and it doesn't always reflect true reality of hard product. Care about the tenor breast thing. I mean, any, mm. for example, fly a, a 777 300ER uh, across the pond on that red carpet route. Mm-hmm the cheapest airlines to fly because of course it's a, you know, LA is a stopover for Auckland they have 10 abreast in economy and it is a magnificent product you know people love the service they love the food they love the kind of attitude of the airline yeah. so I, mean, I know you talk about it a lot and, and funnily enough if you fly United on the red carpet route you'll only be 9 abreast in a 777-200 uh, they, haven't up- <laughs> they haven't filled their planes up with new seats yet they're, they're, they're on their way they're just- <laughs> They've got it in plan in plans. I hear what you're saying. But I just don't think that nine abreast or ten abreast is a is really an issue. Eleven abreast on a three eighty downstairs might be an issue, but actually, I don't think people, regular passengers, would even notice these things. Ah, I, I would. I'm going to strongly dis- disagree with you there, um, because we're seeing people noticing it on social media. We're seeing it in the comment section of our website. I don't know. It's interesting. I mean, this uh, the, what I'm seeing actually conflicts a little bit with what you're saying. We're seeing people buying a knee defender on eBay, so that yeah. <laughs> that is going to increase air rage and has increased air rage to the point that aircraft will be diverting to get rid of unruly passengers. So it's going to get expensive in the end. And you're right; airlines need to have more respect for economy passengers. But maybe they just need to stop selling flights as cheap as they are you know maybe we need to get back to the old days of dressing up for a flight putting on your fur coat <laughs> and 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 eating kind of caviar even in the economy section like uh, well. <laughs> you know, the flips the flip side of all of that uh, is that uh, that there was even a push i think this was a few years ago to suggest that in germany for example that travel should be seen as a human right so i mean it, it's interesting because you you want people that wouldn't normally have access to travel to travel, but then you do have these situations, and there are entire forums dedicated to shaming passengers that are doing just what you described, Anthony. The clipping of the toenails, the feet on the bulkhead, the you know the feet on the seats, and the it it, it is interesting. If we've kind of devolved not only from a product standpoint on many aircraft, but also just humans <laughs> and our behavior yeah, and what they do with their feet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Well, they should at least have a shoes-on policy or hand out flight socks and people wear them like Virgin Atlantic do. <laughs> no shoes, no shirts, no service, something like that. <laughs> oh, Lord. Well, this is, uh, this is actually really highly interesting and entertaining, Anthony, I have to say. I, I could talk to you uh, for a long, long time. Unfortunately, we're rapidly coming to a close here. Um, I want to thank our listeners. And remember, you can find us online at RunwayGirlNetwork.com and on iTunes. Be sure to follow all the Runway Girl Network activity on Twitter at, at @RunwayGirl, And rem- remember to use the PAXX hashtag, P-A-X-E-X, when tweeting about the passenger experience. And we'd love to get your opinion on this because obviously uh, myself and Anthony disagree on some of these items and would love to get your opinion does 
10 abreast versus 9 abreast matter? Does seat width, seat pitch matter? Or ultimately, does the price matter most to you? Um, I'd like to reiterate our thanks to our sponsor, eGate Solutions. And I'd like to thank Anthony for being our guest. Anthony, where can listeners find you at? Uh, well, Mary, I'm on Twitter at the Anthony Davis, and my website is anthonydavis.com. Very good. Anthony, it's been a real pleasure. Hope to talk to you again soon. You too, Max. Thank you so much. So we'll ask all of you to join us again next time as we talk about the passenger experience on the PaxX podcast. Take care, everybody. Take care.